0: Of living here in the Northwoods, attending this church, and uh, working out at Honey Rock. And, uh, ironically, this is the second year in a row that Pastor Niles asked me to uh, cover for him on the last Sunday of the year. And I was thinking of uh, having a Snickers bar in my pocket, and if anybody could remember what I talked about last year, throwing it out, but I forgot the Snicker bar. So, you remember Sue Beth? Joshua, be be strong and courageous. That's right. Candy bar coming to Sue Beth later. Well, today, um, as you can see in your bulletin, we're going to focus on Matthew 24 and 25. And preaching two chapters uh, from the book of Matthew in one sermon is not wise. So hopefully you don't have anything going until about 3.30 when the Packers start. Uh I don't know about you, but it's been interesting to notice uh there's a lot of end-of-the-world movies out. Have you noticed that? Um, world War Z is the most recent one. Anybody seen World War Z, the zombie thing, walking around? Uh, Book of Eli, 2012, War of the Worlds, Armageddon. Uh, I did a search on the computer for end-of-world movies, and it's like... Whoosh, this big, huge, long list. One dude had the top 25. There's just a ton of end-of-the-world movies. And what's interesting, if you look at them, every single one of them, there's some sort of destructive thing that's happening. It might be a meteor is heading towards the earth and going to crash the earth. Uh, Book of Eli. A bomb goes off and the, the world is basically destroyed. Post-nuclear mess. Um, sickness. That's what uh, World War Z is all about. Some sort of plague comes and infects the whole earth. Everybody's dying. There's all this, this destructive end or process that happens, and every movie takes a different look at what it might be that would cause that. And then also interesting to note, at least in the few movies I've seen on this, is that there's always a hero, Brad Pitt's the most recent one, who comes in, and saves the world from this destructive whatever it is that's happening. Well, what's interesting to me is that these extra-biblical stories, meaning outside the Bible stories, at one level are all true. Because guess what? The world as we know it is going to end. We don't know... Specifically, if it's going to burn up, freeze up, get sick up, whatever it might be, but the world is going to end. And there is a hero that comes and saves the day. The difference between what is going to really happen and what these movies are showing is that the real hero, Jesus Christ, is very different from the heroes on TV because our hero can recreate the earth. Our hero will give us all new bodies. Our hero will take away all the sickness and distress and ugliness of whatever mess it is and make it all new. And our hero is the only one capable of saving the world and saving our souls. Well, today we're going to talk about the end of the world as we come to the end of the year. As we've been uh, focusing the last several weeks on the season of advent, season of advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipating the coming of the Christ in the first incarnation, the birth. As we uh, talked about this over the last month, we've talked about the people who waited. We talked about Mary and Joseph, Zachariah and Elizabeth. We talked about Simeon. We talked about those who announced that the waiting was over—angels, shepherds. On Thursday or uh, Christmas Eve service here at our church, we talked about the shepherds, who were the ones that got to announce that the waiting was over. Pastor Nile one Sunday talked about the wise men and how they got to go visit the Christ and announce His coming. Advent, The season of Advent teaches us to wait and to eagerly anticipate the coming of the Christ. And in so doing, and this is part of what Advent is all about, it also teaches us to wait for the second coming and shows us how to do that. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew 24 and walk along with me through this passage, we're going to cruise... But it's such a great passage to be done together that we got to do it. So here's how it starts, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, He asked? He being Jesus. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what we see, and Jim, we can go to the first picture, is Jesus is walking out of the temple. And what you have here is uh, actually the picture of the Temple Mount. Mount That wall you see right above the buses is the far end of the Temple Mount where the temple was. That's a uh, Muslim mosque that's up on the Temple Mount now. But up on top there where that dome is, was where the temple that was uh, there in Jesus' day existed. In the back, you see up there where the trees are and the little thing right up at the skyline? That's the Mount of Olives. A lot happened on the Mount of Olives in Jesus' time. This story and what we're about to read took place right up there on top of that mountain. And it's not really a mountain, it's just a big high hill. They're sitting up there and they're looking down at the temple. Next slide, Jim. This is what they see. This is the temple in Jesus' day. You have the same wall over here on the left where the brown roof is that we were just looking at. Then you have the big courtyard, and then right in the middle is the temple with that tall part in the middle of the holy, is the holy of holies. And that is where Zechariah went in a few weeks ago, and we talked about him, and the angel came and visited him. Priest went in once a year, God's presence existed in there, and it was a holy of holy of holies. So this is what the disciples and Jesus were looking down on, From the Mount of Olives, that hill that we just saw. is trying to put it in perspective for you. Basically, it would be like us standing on the top of our church and looking over at the Werner's house on Maple Lake about a mile that way and talking about their house. That's how close it was. It's not that far away, but they're on this mountain looking down on this scene. Next slide, Jim. This is the view that they would have had. This is on the top of the Mount of Olives. That gold dome, it's called the Dome of the Rock. It's the Muslim mosque. Right where that dome is, is where that temple, that Holy of Holies that we were just looking at was. This is what they were looking at. Only it was the real temple. And Jesus is saying to them, all of that is going to be gone. Well, of course, this causes a little bit of a reaction in the disciples. And they're saying, when? What does it mean? What's going to happen? How long? What do we do? Just a million questions start coming out as they think about this idea. I had another picture, but it wasn't very good. But when you walk around that wall right now, there's big, huge piles of massive pieces of the stones of the temples. In 20 or in 70 AD, the Romans came, or they were actually here already. And they took and they destroyed that Holy of Holies and everything that was on the top of the Temple Mount, and they just pushed it over the rock wall, and now it just sits in big, huge piles of rubble all along that wall. It's gone. In 70 A.D., about 30-some years after this story, the Romans destroyed the Temple. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus uses this story, or this uh, this picture of the temple being destroyed to make a much bigger point. And that's what we're going to see as we move through. Next slide, Jim. The context, this is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching it on the Mount of Olives. It is the last significant teaching of Jesus to His disciples before the crucifixion. So you see here in this verse, it says, they were sitting privately so it's just the disciples and Jesus up on top of the Mount of Olives and they were talking about what Jesus said earlier that day when He said, all of this is going to be gone. They go, what did you mean? What was all that that happened back there? What are you talking about? While they're sitting there looking at the temple and putting at it. So we see two questions here that the disciples ask, but there's two others that get answered in the next two chapters. Let's... uh look at these questions the first question what will be the sign of your return what will be the sign that this is all going to happen that's the second question that they ask the first question is when will this happen and then the other two questions that jesus answers in this passage are what do we do until you return and what will happen when you return So let's dig into it and wrestle with these questions. The first question that Jesus answers is actually the second one that the disciples asked. Next slide. The question is, what will be the sign of your return and of the end of the age? How do we know when this is going to happen? This sounds really bad, so we want to be prepared. Well, let's look at what he says, and I'm not going to read all of this passage, but from verse 4 all the way to verse 35, Jesus talks about what it's going to be like. And the answer to this question is complete chaos and suffering. If you read through this passage, you're going to see chaos and suffering in the world. There's false messiahs. There's wars. There's famines. There's earthquakes. There's the increase of wickedness. Jesus talks about it being Like birth pains, where the suffering is so intense that you're just like waiting for it to happen. I haven't been there personally, but I've watched it four times. It's ugly. It's just not the birthing thing, this thing that Jesus is talking about. That's actually pretty cool. But the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the increase of wickedness, look at verse 21, where Jesus says, The distress is so great, it has not been seen since the beginning of the world. This sounds really bad, folks. In verse 22, Jesus says, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. It's a mess. This is the sign that Jesus is coming back, is that the world is going to be in complete chaos and there's going to be suffering untold everywhere. It sounds pretty ugly to me. I always smile at the debate that you can hear every once in a while. The world is getting better or is the world getting worse? If you look at this passage, for Christ to come back, the world has to get worse. And I don't know about you, but just having TV that can show me every country in the whole wide world and every disaster within minutes of it happening, be that tidal waves that sweep through and knock out 100,000 people, earthquakes blow up nuclear power plants, Starving people. Governments that are so corrupt that they're taking all the food that's being brought in for the people in their country and hoarding it. Millions of babies being aborted. Kids being shot up in schools. I don't need to go on. There's a lot of ugly stuff going on right now. Is it the worst it's going to get? Is as bad as it's going to get? I don't know. But it's looking pretty bad to me. And on one level, I go, what in the world? Why do we have to have all this suffering? When does it end? Why is it going on? Why is God doing it this way? And if I'm hurting about it, if it's bothering me, what must it be doing to Him? Because He loves perfectly and fully and completely it just must be tearing him up to seeing us destroying each other. And yet he waits. He's got to have a reason. When we were in Israel a few, uh, a few weeks ago, it was actually the uh, first couple weeks of November, uh, many of you know Jackie, my wife, fell and broke her arm. And it was one of those things where I could tell that her arm was broken the second I walked up to her because it had a little U-shape in it. And it's not supposed to do that. So here we are in Israel. We were in this park way off, and we got a little ride in a gator back to the parking lot. We ended up at an uh, emergency room place. They took an x-ray, said it's broken, put a little splint on, said you've got to go to the hospital, see an orthopedic person. We went... Rode a taxi cab for another 30, 40 minutes to a hospital. Went into the hospital. Most of the folks spoke English, at least enough for us to be able to get through the hospital. We got into the room where the doctor saw her arm, saw the x rays. The doctor didn't speak English at all, didn't say anything hardly to us at all. He just grabbed this big, huge needle and put some stuff in it and then just stuck it in her wrist where it was broken. And was just shooting it up. She's going, oh, what are you doing? I look at the nurse and I say, what's he doing? Figuring he's putting in, you know, stuff to make it not hurt. Which is what he was doing. And then he grabs her wrist without much warning. And he just starts pulling on it and bringing it back into line. My wife is screaming worse than I've ever seen after four kids. And I'm hearing this crunching sound in her wrist. It is pure pain. I'm literally on top of her, holding her down, legs, arms. And you want to say, Stop. But you can't. Because you believe, I believed that that pain, as great as it was, was necessary for the good that was coming on the other side of it, which is a straight arm. So I'm not in God's mind, and I don't pretend to be in God's mind at all, but I look at the pain of the world and I wonder why is God waiting? And there must be a reason. There must be a reason. I suspect it's for the good the great and amazing good that's coming on the other side of this thing. Which let's look at verse 29. E, immediately after the distress of those days and all the mess, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the peoples of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So the key verse of this section is right here. This pain, this complete chaos, this unending suffering, it ends because Christ returns. And in that moment, all of his people are gathered together from every corner and you're united with him. So we wait and we watch. As the world gets worse and things get messier and the pain mounts and mounts and mounts and we hope for the day that Jesus will come back and bring an end to all this with everything in us. That's what Jesus is talking about and how He answers the first question. The next question that Jesus addresses, that the disciples bring up, is when will this happen? Well, the answer we see in verse 36, 42 and 44, in the next two paragraphs of this section, where Jesus says, "...but about that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father." So when will His return happen? No one knows. No one knows. There's no year, there's no date, there's no time given. Jesus says, I don't even know. Only the Father knows when it's time. I don't know if any of you uh, noticed, but about a week ago, Harold Camping died. Anybody know who Harold Camping is? About six, seven, eight hands. Harold Camping had a radio show and for the last fifty years one of the main things that he's done and what he's most well known for is predicting the day that Jesus will come back. His most recent prediction was May twenty first, twenty eleven. And all of you might remember that. They actually bought bulletin board you know, billboards and had it all over the place. And uh I think even here at church we were kinda joking about, well, we'll see you all in heaven next week and uh-oh, we're here. What happened a week later? This guy spent his life doing mathematical calculations based on Scripture and all kinds of other stuff trying to predict the day. And he predict four or five different ones, I believe. And after the May 21st one, which passed, he said, Oh, I was wrong. It's actually in October. And October came and went too. And... I'm sitting there watching this and smiling a little bit because Jesus tells us no one knows. No one knows. We spend um, time wondering, but we can't know. Jesus gives four different examples here of what it's like. He gives the Noah example. As it was in the days of Noah... Verse 37, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man for the days, in the days before the pl- flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Here are people just living their life. This dude's building a big ark and they're just basically living their life doing everything like normal. There's a big, huge ark right there. In front of them, there's a sign and they just go on living their lives as if nothing's happening. And then one day, bam, it's raining, it's flood, they're gone. The other examples that Jesus gives, two men in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain grained at the handmill, one will be taken, the other left. And then in verse... 42 he says therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come and then he gives the last example of what it would be like if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into so you must also be ready because the son of man will come at the hour when you do not expect him Isn't it interesting, in a few short verses, Jesus three times says, you can't know. You can't know. But be ready. Be watching. Be awake. Be alert. Don't just live your life as if nothing's going to change or nothing's going to happen. Because it's going to happen. So that leads us to our third question which Jesus now answers with three different parables, three different stories. What do we do until you return? They didn't ask this question, but Jesus answers it with these three pictures. Verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? In a sense, this question sets us up for the three stories that follow. Who is faithful in the midst of this chaos and destruction while we wait? While we look for this to end, for it to come, for Jesus to come. The first story is a faithful servant. Verse 46. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will be put in charge of all of his possessions. In other words, if he's faithful, he will be given more responsibility. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have a servant. And the story Jesus gives is that servant doing his duty, being responsible, fulfilling the charge that he's given, which in this story is to care for the other servants in the household and make sure they are fed, verse 45. Or the wicked servant who gets impatient, quits looking, and just starts taking advantage of the wealth and partying his life away. So, what do we do until Jesus returns? The first answer Jesus gives us is to fulfill our duties and responsibilities. The next story, parable of ten virgins. Back in that day, when a man was engaged to a woman, that meant they're going to get married. And that man would go back to his parents' house and would build a room or an addition on the house. And when that room and addition was finished, Then the groom would grab all his friends and all his family and in the middle of the night would go to where his bride was, the home of his bride, and would grab the bride and bring her back to his house. And all of her family would come and there would be a big celebration. But it happened at night. And it was this secret kind of fun adventure thing going through the town in the dark. So this story of the ten virgins... It's about a bridesmaid waiting. And there's ten of them. And while they're waiting, five of them go out with their lamps and with a lot of oil because they don't know how long it's going to be. So they're prepared. Five others just go out with their lamps. And they're waiting and their oil gets used up. And the groom hasn't come. And then the groom is coming. And the girl, the, the virgins who had not brought enough oil said, hey, give us some of your oil. And the five that had taken oil and were prepared said, no. Go buy some. Go get your own. We can't give ours because we were prepared. We were ready. We didn't know how long it was going to be, but we brought what we needed to be ready. To me, it kind of sounded like Y2K. Do you remember that? Back... Four decades ago, when everything was going to collapse on January 1, 2000. So people were building little storage things in their house and they were filling it with food and water and getting generators and getting all ready. They were all prepared for complete chaos. Which we survived that okay. And I'm not knocking those folks, but those folks at one level are wise like in this story with the five virgins who were prepared who were ready who were expectant so the ten virgins teach us to keep watch and to be ready and to not give up on the waiting the last story that we see Jesus use is the very famous parable of the talents where Jesus has three servants Or tells the story of three servants and the master leaving, and the master gives one servant five talents, another two, and another one. A talent is the equivalent of 20 years of wages for a common laborer. So I took minimum wage and just guessed at that. So minimum wage, 15,000 ish a year, times 20 years, $300,000. So the guy with five talents got 1.5 million dollars equivalent. The person that got two talents got 600 thousand dollars, and the one talent dude didn't get very much. You know, he only got 300 thousand dollars. Think we could uh, do something with 300 thousand bucks? Well, we know the story. The five talent guy reinvested his and came back and had earned five talents more. The guy with two talents went out, invested his, used it, came back with two talents more. And the one talent guy went and buried it because he was afraid. And if you look at verse 21 and 23, the reward for the five talent guy and the two talent guy is exactly the same. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. Exact same reward for the five talent and the two talent. The point isn't how much they got. The point is what did they do with the talents they were given? What did they do? Were they faithful? Were they responsible with what God had given? Or their master had given them? Notice... What happens to the one talent guy? Verse 28. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty brutal. The one talent guy is thrown out to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Picture of hell. So, what we see, what do we do until Christ returns in the midst of all this suffering and chaos and destruction? What's the call that Christ is putting on us to be faithful? to be faithful in discharging the responsibilities He gave us. And what do those responsibilities look like? Well, let's go to question four. And the last part of this passage, Olivet Discourse, this Sermon on the Mount too, if you will, same exact mount as the first Sermon on the Mount. Mount of Olives. Jesus working with His disciples he ends this section with the story of the sheep and the goats, which again is somewhat familiar to us, but often we look at this story outside of the context of what it is. This story is in the context of the end of times and what we're supposed to be doing till Christ returns. So in this story, it talks about um, I'll just read it. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. So there's a sorting that goes on here. Sheep and goats are separated. And notice the reward. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. What are we to be doing? In the midst of this suffering and chaos. Meeting the needs of the world. Meeting the needs of the world. Meeting the needs of the suffering. Meeting, walking into the mess. With hope. Isn't it interesting in verse 37 that the righteous answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? They're not even aware that they're serving the Lord and doing it. It's kind of like they're just doing it out of who they are in their transformed being. They're caring for the poor and the hungry and the thirsty. And then verse 40, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then verse 41 is where we hear what happens to the to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and thirsty and all the same things, but you didn't do anything. What's interesting to me, and I don't know about you, but in studying this passage and thinking about the end times, we always hear about the end times and the judgment and going before the throne and the Lamb's book of life and our names are in it. And I don't know where I got this, but when I was a little kid, somehow I remember or I was under the understanding that God knew all of my sins. And then when I got before the throne, it's going to be, here's the list of your sins, Rob. Just a big, huge, long list. And it scared me to death. I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like going to heaven is much fun when the first thing you get confronted with is your whole life of sins. Every thought, every word, every deed. What this story teaches us about the judgment and that whole time of judging is it's not about the sins. He's looking at our lives to decide how great is the reward. How great is the award he's going to give us? The five talent guy got five more, and was given more responsibility. The two talent guy given got two more, given more responsibility. It's about the reward, and we're rewarded for what we did during this time of suffering and chaos and destruction. Were we faithful? Were we fulfilling our duties? Were we living a generous and hospitable life? In other words, were we the light of the world? Were we revealing hope in the midst of complete hopelessness? By the way we lived and how we cared for the people around us. The sheep-goat story is about what's the reward? And I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but based on this passage and others in Scripture, there's rewards. And the amount of rewards have something to do with how we lived our lives here on earth. in the midst of the suffering and the chaos. Uh, every summer at Honey Rock, uh, we have about 80 college students that come and are counselors. And they have kids in their cabins. Some of our sessions are two weeks, others are four weeks. There's some sessions that are seven weeks long. So counselors are responsible for the same group of campers in the seven-week category, it's high school kids, for seven whole weeks. Living with them in the cabin, working with them every day, sleeping with them every night, 24-7 for seven straight weeks. Even the two-week folks, they do four sessions. And when I think about summer... And when I think about the college students and what's happening in them as they serve, the greatest lesson that I think they learn and the most important decision they make during the summer that affects and will affect how they live the rest of their life is what do they do when they're tired and worn out? What do they do for the third session camper when they've been doing this thing for five weeks by then? What is the counselor doing on week six of the seven-week session? Are they counting the seconds until they leave next Friday? Or are they treating day 42 the same way they treated day one? And are they faithful? And are they enduring? And are they giving hope and love all the way to the end or not? Perseverance. Want a whole nother sermon? Just look at the word perseverance and endurance in Scripture in the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's one of the most highly valued character qualities of a transformed life. Someone that can endure hardship with hope and bring hope to the world. In the midst of hardship. Does the last camper get the same investment and energy and love as the first. If our college students can leave Honey Rock with a mindset of perseverance and endurance and bringing hope in the midst of tiredness and destruction and a messed up world, then Honey Rock's accomplished its purpose in their life. So last slide, Jim. The final word. How you wait matters. How we wait for the second coming of the Lord matters. This annual process of Advent where we re-wait for the coming of the Messiah on Christmas Day and reorient ourselves around the fact that Jesus comes. He comes. And He came. And He's here with us and in us. And He's going to come again. And all the suffering and pain and mess is going to vanish. Advent is about that. And as we launch into 2014, it's my hope and prayer and challenge for us this year that we would be faithful and enduring. That the generosity and the service, the giving that we so focus on for 25 days in December every year would be our way of life every day. Last night, I uh, watched the news on NBC, and there was a guy uh, on there that they were highlighting. The last story of the news show is always, you know, somebody that's doing something good. And it was an 80-some-year-old guy who has been a bell ringer for the Salvation Army in Denver for 60 years. Sixty years. A retired corporate executive who started way back. he has a big, huge Swiss cowbell from his grandpa, and he's out there ringing it. And guess what? Guess who's with him now? All of his grown adult kids and all of his grandkids. There's like 30 people standing around one red kettle, singing and praying and having a blast, being encouragement to the world. And they said that this group raises about $15,000 a year in their kettle. He's been doing it for 60 years. Oh, that that would be our lives. That Christmas wouldn't just be a 25-day season of caring and giving and generosity and service, but it would be our lives all the time. Because that's what we're called to do while we wait. And while we hope for the return of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this picture. And though I don't like some of it, and the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the confusion and the mess. I know, Father, that you've given it to us for a purpose. And I pray that we would be faithful, faithful, faithful in the midst of it all. That the world might see that you are alive and well and that there is hope. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, let's sing the last song. There's no Sunday school today, by the way.